Hello, and welcome back to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, John Latiri. This week, I sit down for a conversation with Benga Ajalore, a senior economist at the Center for American Progress. We discuss the ongoing economic crisis and what effect it could have on persistent gaps in the labor market between black and white Americans. We also get into a somewhat unexpected, but hopefully fruitful, discussion on the social upheaval that's come in the wake of the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and the renewed attention being brought to the issues of policing and inequality in America. As you'll hear, we share many of the same concerns, but have very different perspectives on how best to address them. And with that, here's my conversation with Benga Ajalore. Enjoy. Benga, thanks for coming on the show. So what I always ask guests, guests to start with, uh, what led them into their uh, current profession. So what led you to become an economist and, and what areas of research and public policy are you most focused on? So I started out as a math major in college. I went to UC Berkeley and always loved math growing up and in, in high school. And at some point in college, I realized I can't make a career out of this. And so I said, well, I want to apply it to some other thing. So I first looked at computer science, uh, was thinking that maybe doing double major in math computer science would be interesting. But I realized I hated programming. So then I switched to economics and then got really fascinated by it. But the one thing in my undergrad class that I was confused by is that we would talk about public policy, we talk about government, and in economics, you'd say, oh, this is the optimal policy, and then the politics screws it up. And then I was wondering, I was like, well, if politics screws it up, can't we model that? Can we look into that? And so I wanted to go further and study economics, and so I went to grad school. The funny thing about going to grad school and getting a PhD in economics was you basically do math and programming which is what I tried to avoid in college. But then once I got my PhD, I got a job at the University of Toledo in Ohio. And so it was just a lot of just kind of a question is, why do we see policies as they are? And so, and then I also wanted to understand, well, how did that, how does race play into that? And a lot of what kind of formed my thinking was growing up in Southern California, everyone always talks about California as this liberal bastion, but I grew up in the eighties and nineties and there was a big push um, a lot of propositions uh, in California, you have like hundreds of propositions every year where you um, direct democracy. And we had these basically three propositions that you could almost base off of race. And so one was Prop 187 was about illegal immigration. And so to some of us, that was read as like an anti-Mexican proposition. And then we had Prop, I think it's 209 which was to kind of curb affirmative action. And that felt like an anti-Black proposition. And then we had one third one, and I can't remember off the top of my head now, but that was felt like an anti-Asian proposition. And so a lot of my thoughts was that a lot of policy, race plays a big part in that. And I wanted to kind of model that and look at how does race have an impact on public spending. And so I first looked at school district spending, seeing, looking at, racial diversity in a school district, how does that relate to school district spending? And so some of my early research found that as a school district gets more diverse, we see lower spending. And so that kind of tracked with what um, growing up in California, you even go back to the 70s with Prop 13. And then I kind of shifted towards police spending saying, okay, well, do we see a similar pattern? If an area gets more diverse, do we see more or less? So in this case, found that we saw a lot more police spending. And so that kind of goes into um, even, I mean, I don't want to bring the administration in it, but I just think of a recent tweet by the president 
talking about warning of certain things. And that's, and my research from, you know, 15 years ago kind of showed that. And so then I kind of shifted to different, um, after I got tenure, I shifted to different one looking at peer effects and then going into, and then after Ferguson, I started looking more at policing and looking at policing reform and specifically looking at militarization. And so I did a lot of research on militarization and try to see if I could link that with adverse police outcomes like use of force and police killings. Um, but at this point, I've been in the field for about 10 to 13 years and start to get burnt out, burnt out on teaching, burnt out on research, because in the academic field, there was this causal inference kind of revolution. And so the bar was higher to getting published. And so I was working, you know, working on these things and struggling to get it published. And it's one of those things where there was kind of these priors in the field that we're hearing more about this year in terms of economics. And so I did a fellowship at the Urban Institute, uh, work at the Justice Policy Center to do more kind of more underground work in terms of policing. And so I was going to do a year there and then go back to academia and continue my work. And then the Center for American Progress reached out to me because they were looking for an economist. And one of the things that I had always had an interest in was in D.C. So in college, I did a semester internship and fell in love with the city. And so I'd always go to conferences here in D.C. and travel. And so while I enjoyed academia, being a tenured professor is a very good life. Can't really complain much about it. Uh, security is really nice. Um, I was interested in, you know, almost like I feel like working at CAP would be getting into the game. And so I went to CAP and I still kept my academic position because if, if it didn't work out for me, I could always go back. And so what I always like to tell people is that it took me about nine months to figure out what I do at a think tank because it's such a different way of life. So in academia, you start a project and if you're lucky in five years, you get a publication. In the think tank world, you start a project and within two months, you have to have some sort of product. And when you publish something, like in academia, you publish a journal article, the project's over. In the think tank life, you publish something, that's just the start. You write something, you publish it, and it's like, okay, well, who's the audience? Does it go up to the hill? Is it for local policymakers? Is it for federal policymakers? Is it for the press? Is it for the public? How do you do that? And so it took me a while just to kind of get a feel for that. And after about a year, I really got a feel for work at a think tank. And I, and I really enjoy it. I've really, uh, I feel like I've really blossomed in ter terms of like being able to figure out what I want to do and being able to kind of use my skills to kind of, you know, make a difference. Because at the end of the day, everything that I've always wanted to do, everything that's driven me is, there's got to be a tangible impact that I make on someone's life. So either in academia as a teacher and teaching students and doing uh, research that gets in a journal that gets picked up or at the think tank where I send stuff to a policymaker or, and what we'll get into this later, change the narrative on certain topics, whether it's black, white labor gaps, whether it's how do we define rural America, um, the role of policy, you know, who do we, who do we listen to? That's what drives me. Yeah, and a lot of the issues that you mentioned that have been a historical focus for you are all coming into, they're all converging into the current moment we're in, right? So I want to start with 
uh, labor market gaps. Even prior to the crisis, uh, you've been among the most vocal economists in pointing out because you know it's hard to remember now, but just a few months ago we were talking about some of the best labor market numbers that we'd ever seen in this country, and uh, so there's been quite a bit of whiplash. But but even in that moment, you were one of those voices reminding us that aggregate numbers, once you disaggregate them, look different across different populations, across different places. places. And you've been particularly vocal in pointing out the persistent uh, labor market gaps between black and white uh, American workers. Uh, so I, I want you to talk about that a little bit now. Just what are those structural issues? What are the patterns that you found as you've looked at those historical trends? And how are they playing out now in the crisis? Yeah, so as you mentioned before, I think it was February, I published a piece called The Persistence of the Black-White Unemployment Gap, because a lot of people, this was a, actually the lowest African-American unemployment rate was 5.5% in October of 2019. And so everyone's touting that, and everyone's saying, oh, well, you know, the gap's going to close because of tight labor markets. And one of the things I'd mentioned, and even mentioned in that piece, was tight labor markets is not a labor market policy that we should pursue. Because what what's going to happen in recession is that we have African-Americans are the first fired and the last hired. I didn't realize that a month later that it would show, but it was a whole point that we have to understand that there's these gaps between the black unemployment rate and the white unemployment rate. That it's for as long as we've recorded the unemployment rate. So going back to January 1972, when they first started disaggregating specifically black unemployment rate, because prior to that, it would be black and non-white. So from January 1972 all the way to February of 2020, the gap was basically double. And so this is through, you know, you think about the late 90s was a great labor market. It was double. In the Great Recession, it was double. So one of the things that I found was that whether you have a good economy or a bad economy, there's always that gap, which means there has to be structural issues. There has to be things in the labor market that's preventing that gap from closing. Because in theory... There should be no gap. The unemployment rate for whites, for blacks, for Asians, for Latinx people should all be the same because there really should be no difference. And some of the and, you know other people have done this work. Uh, Economic Policy Institute has done a lot on this. Has showed that even if you look by um, education or you look by wealth or income, these gaps stay the same. So you look at you know people with advanced degrees, there's still a gap. And so the question is, well, why is that? And, you know, really want to kind of highlight that so that we aren't lazy in our policy, that we understand that there's deeper issues. And what's kind of one of the unfortunate things about this pandemic is that, you know, a lot of times when you talk about these issues that are problems, you hate to be proven right. And what we've seen in this pandemic is that all the things I talked about in that piece in February all came to fruition with the recession. But one of the interesting things that happened was that this is a pandemic is different from other recessions because of the public health crisis. And one of the things that we saw that in March, we saw a little bit of a jump in unemployment rates and the gap started to, the gap was increasing. African-Americans were losing their jobs at a higher rate than whites. But then the next month when it really blew up and it went to double digits, the gap actually closed. It almost narrowed. I think it was like 14% for African-Americans and 13% for whites. And what happened there is that we had the issue of essential workers. And actually, essential workers is a misnomer. I think uh, my mentor and friend, 
uh, Dr. Rhonda Sharp, she said, these are essential, these are workers in essential jobs because of the way we treat these workers. And so again, you know, I, a lot of things I'm going to talk about is going to go back to race. And so you look at a lot of these essential jobs, so grocery stores, pharmacists, public transit are disproportionately African-American. So as the pandemic hit and we had the lockdown, these groups were still working. So while unemployment went up, it didn't go up as much because of that essential jobs aspect. Now, the reason why I talk about workers in extent in where we talk about workers in essential jobs is because if we actually, if they're essential workers, we would do the things to make sure that they stay safe. So having PPE, having hazard pay, uh, keeping them safe, doing the stuff to keep them safe. But the, the way we look at it is that the jobs are essential, but the workers are expendable. And that's something that we're hearing a, more, a lot of people talk about now because we're not protecting them and they're at higher risk of contracting the virus. And so when we talk about the structural issues, we have to think, what is it, why is it that groups are not treated equally? And so in economics, the academic literature over the last 15, 20 years have really pushed into that. And so they've done a lot of research in terms of what they refer to as audit studies, where you look at, um, you take a resume and you just change the name and you send it to a lot of employers and see what is happening in the labor market between those two resumes. And so what they found is that people with a typically black sounding name are less likely to get callbacks, are less likely to get interviews. And so when we talk about structural issues, that's the kind of things that were happening that's happening that you can have the same level of education, you can have all the requirements, internships, things like that, but there's this kind of underlying subconscious bias that people have. Well, in certain cases, maybe subconscious, in other cases, it may be conscious, um, where you just, you're not going to get that chance. You walk in the door and they, people are already, already going to kind of look down upon you. Um, the other thing you look at is uh, the criminal justice system. And we look at mass incarceration of the last 40 years and how that impacts the labor market is that people who've been, who've been incarcerated have a tougher time getting a job because of the bias against that. And so when you have a disproportionate um, impact of incarceration for certain groups, African-Americans, Latinx people, that's going to have implications for the labor market. And, and so those are kind of like two examples of why we see these persistent gaps that shouldn't exist. I want to be clear about something you said earlier in, in that uh, I think you said uh, a tight, tight labor market is not something we should pursue. Is it that we shouldn't pursue it or that it's not sufficient for closing the gaps? Because it would, it would strike me that right. the tight labor market, there's two, there's two uh, intertwining goals here. Tight labor market helps to drive down everybody's unemployment rate, right? Like that, that, right. that's part of what we see, but it isn't sufficient in closing the, uh, the racial gaps that you're mentioning here. So I wanted to unpack that just a little bit more. Right. So I'm not saying tight labor markets aren't a goal. Tight labor markets aren't the answer to closing gaps. Yes. Yeah. Just I want to be, be super clear about that. Right. Uh, so so if, if the crisis risks exacerbating some of those structural differences, what are the kind of policies that might have been good to implement at any time, but are particularly important now, given that we're going to we're going to be spending the next few years coming out of this unwinding uh, the damage that's been done uh, in this crisis. What are the kind of things you want to see Congress do in response with the explicit goal, again, not just a tight labor market uh, in a recovery that 
brings back a lot of jobs, but one that helps to reverse some of those structural issues. So I'll bring up a simple answer that Jim Tankersley brought up on your podcast, where he says, and sexism and racism. That's the answer. <laughs> and I, I, uh, and because of time, I didn't press Jim on, on what that would mean. Uh, so th that's your, that's the uh, softball we're throwing to you is uh, right. actually unpack what that would look like. So first is an acknowledgement that racism and sexism exist because we see a lot of pushback, even given this pandemic, because the pandemic has kind of blown everything open. And so first thing is, you know, to understand the first thing to fixing a problem is acknowledging the problem exists. And I think that's the first thing we need to highlight is acknowledging that the problem exists and seeing language. So when we think about racism, we think about, you know, the old documentary Eyes on a Prize. We think about the civil rights movement, the black and white videos of people being beat up. But that's a small token of racism, a small part of racism. Racism is actually the establishment of hierarchy and the maintenance of that hierarchy. And what you're trying to do is try to disadvantage certain groups of people through a lot of ways. The violence that we saw was just a way of enforcing that hierarchy, but it wasn't the creation of that hierarchy. And so a lot of times language. So, you know, you think growing up, a lot of people said, oh, you are so articulate. And people don't think that's a bad thing. But what that assumes is that I'm not articulate, that there's already that, that bias that when you see me and I start speaking, you assume that I don't have a good command of the English language. So when I talk and you say, oh, you're so articulate, what that tells me is you already think, you think of my potential as very minimal. And that's racism. Because how does that translate? Well, you're not going to want to hire me. Even though my resume looks good, you already think, oh, well, there's only so much this person could do. And that person is not going to add to my business. That's not going to help my business grow because there's, I'm putting a ceiling on their ability. That's racism. And same thing if, if for a woman, you know, that's sexism. And so we have to acknowledge that exists. We have to acknowledge, acknowledge how it exists. And therefore we can say, oh, well, we need to change that. And so I think about Dr. Ibram X. Kendi in his book about anti-racism. And one of the things, you know, I talk about these structures and these hierarchies is that you can, you can have racism without racists. So when people say, oh, that statement wasn't racist or that person is a racist bone in their body, I push back on that because it doesn't matter. Because if you're doing the status quo, that is racism because the structures are there. So the fact that you think about mass incarceration, well, why is it disproportionately African-American, disproportionately Latinx, disproportionately low-income individuals? Well, because our laws are created to actually funnel those people through the criminal justice system so that when they get out, there's a limit put on their potential. So there's studies that show that uh, someone who's been through the carceral system is going to have $180,000 less of income lifetime. And so you look at, and so in the way, and reason why this is racism, you look at the protests that we've had during this pandemic. In May, we had a bunch of white people storm state capitals, armed to the teeth, 
you know, fully outfitted, going up saying that they want the states to reopen prematurely that we're seeing now. And then you look at the police response to that. They didn't respond at all. They stood there. In fact, they were being abused by these people. There's images, there's video of people shouting at cops, and you never heard back the blue then. After George Floyd was murdered and black and brown and white people were protesting, that's when you see police in riot gear. That's when you see tear gas. That's when the administration sent federal troops into these cities. And so, and a lot of these people in the George Floyd protests have been arrested, have put in jail. Now they've been put through the system. Now their prospects for upward mobility, for economic social mobility have been diminished. The white people who went to the state capitals, they're gonna go back home, they're gonna be fine. And now that's, that's, that's structural racism in action. There's a group of people both protesting the federal government, but one group is gonna have their mobility diminished than another group. I, I think it's important what, what you mentioned, uh, separating intentions from effects, right? That you, uh, regardless of the intention of a certain policy or certain behavior, we have to look at the effect it has uh, in practice. One of the areas where I think this is the most obvious is in zoning and land use, right? And this was brought vividly on display uh, in recent uh, recently. But the the president had a tweet about the suburban lifestyle dream and not building affordable housing in uh, in uh, affluent suburban areas. So uh, quintessential nimbyism distilled into tweet form, right? Mm-hmm. And then you had Robert Reich, uh, an email from Robert Reich uh, uh, demonstrating nimbyism in practice as he was mm-hmm. writing uh, about a proposed, you know, building of, of 10 units in Berkeley uh, in, uh, in the attempt to get a historic designation to prevent that on a old dilapidated site. And so, you know, we could say in both cases, you you don't have to believe that uh, the president is racist to believe that uh, what what he's talking about is, is, uh, has the effect of perpetuating things that we know deepen the the economic and racial segregation of our country, nor do we have to believe that Robert Reich is a racist. But in both cases, uh, I I thought they, they just so vividly demonstrated this left-right political convergence around uh, nimbyism that we know historically has had such a negative and traumatic effect in exacerbating that black-white wealth gap, right? Because of, because of the role homeownership plays in, in building wealth in our country and the way that we've used explicit policies and the tools of local government to, to, to make sure that we, uh, uh, we do things that sound innocuous, preserve neighborhood character preserve history. Uh, that, that phrase has never sounded innocuous to me. <laughs> well, so those, those euphemisms are uh, main, the people perpetuating them may not have it, may not have a racist bone in their body as far as they know, but the, the, the effect of that we know is, uh, is uh, incredibly uh, 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 significant when it comes to the kind of long-term outcomes that we spend a lot of time in other areas of policy trying to unwind. Uh, how do you think, because this is not a, in that, in that sense, it's not a left or right issue, right? A lot of the most NIMBY places in the country are the most outwardly progressive uh, and, and in many cases, you know, uh, progressive strongholds. Uh, so these are, these are things that when we separate intentions from effect, we find that this affects, uh, this is an issue that is, that is uh, 
is prevalent in a lot of places in the country and among a lot of people in the country who might not otherwise associate their behavior with these kind of large structural issues that you're talking about. do you think we're at a kind of an awakening moment on these things? I, I've, I've asked other guests this question because I, when I looked at the, the protest after George Floyd's death and, I, and, I, and the kind of conversation we're having as a country, my mind immediately goes to, to that very boring issue of zoning and land use, right? When I think about what's, what's the most anti-racist thing we could do in public policy, it might very well be abolishing single family zoning and uh, you know, doing, doing the kind of things that really allow people to live and build adequate housing near where jobs and opportunities are. How do you think about that? I think you're correct. Um, so I'll, I'll talk, I'll start with the housing part first. Housing has always been the biggest tool towards building wealth and policies that have limited that have had racist undertones. And we just think about redlining and that was, you know, key where, you know, you look at a neighborhood and, you know, they look at these characteristics of, do we provide a loan in this neighborhood? And so we look at a lot of factors. One of the explicit factors was the percentage of African-Americans. And if it was above a certain percent, that's red. You don't give any loans there. And so, and so I'm going to actually riff a little bit. But, you know, growing up in California, moved to Toledo. It's about an hour south of Detroit. And I remember hearing the story of Eight Mile. And the story of Eight Mile is that, you know, Detroit is like a lot of urban areas. You have the downtown and then you have the suburbs in the outer area. And in Detroit, it goes, you know, starts from, I think, like seven mile and goes all the way up to, I think, like 16 mile. And then the further out, the nicer the neighborhoods are. At Eight Mile, they built a wall so that the federal government could know that, okay, everything above Eight Mile has no black people. So you could provide loans there. Everything below eight mile is where the African-Americans live. And so you don't provide a loan there. And then I moved to Toledo in 2003 and I was reading about the story. I was like, this is crazy. And then I found that the wall still exists. And so if you go to Detroit now and go to eight mile, there's an intersection where that wall is still there. And so a few years ago, they actually kind of made it into a memorial to kind of to remind you history is not that long ago. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that all the properties below eight mile did not see their property values grow. And the properties above eight mile saw a lot of growth. So the people who live above eight mile have greater wealth. And then that's intergenerational wealth that gets pushed, you know, get, that gets passed on generation after generation. And then you look at, well, what if people, black people should be able to move to places above eight mile? Well, then that's where police come in. And so then you have police coming in and then, you know, engaging in behavior, social control to keep people, keep African-Americans below eight mile. And then if you have more police presence, then there's a lot more arrests, there's a lot more convictions, and then they're the carceral system. And then you have intergenerational poverty working through that mechanism. So then 60 years later, 80 years later, you have these gaps that are existing. And then people say, oh, well, black people just don't want to work hard. And when it's actually intentional federal policy, local policy, that's creating these gaps. So then you break down the wall and if you let people live and then if you let those neighborhoods grow, the people who live in those neighborhoods are going to be able to have more wealth. But if you maintain the zoning, if you maintain that, if you try to, and I'm, you know, this is going to be audio, but I'm doing air quotes, 
preserve neighborhood characteristics, preserve neighborhood character, what you're trying to say is that you're trying to keep African-Americans and other people of color out to limit their, and then that limits opportunity. And then you think, uh, I have a colleague of mine just had a report, uh, look at the jobs housing fit. And so you look at these urban areas. So a number of researchers, I think it was David Otter, showed that there's no urban rural wage, there's no premium to moving to urban area now because the wages for low-income people haven't got risen, but then housing prices have risen. So where can low-income people, people who are janitors, people who work in these places by low income, where can they live? Well, they live further and further out. And so they look, yeah, at transportation costs and then public transit and things like that. And so again, these are things that because we don't intentionally try to close these gaps, we don't think about, oh, well, these people probably need to live closer, so we need more affordable housing. Uh, or we need to provide more benefits so that they have higher wages so that they can afford to live in these places. That it creates the ex- exacerbates income inequality and later wealth inequality. And then we have to spend a lot in creating programs and trying to uh, devise elaborate solutions to a problem that could just be solved in, in large part, at least by, by not distorting housing markets through that kind of, uh, uh, exclusionary practice, right? right. We, we have to go upstream for a lot of these things. And, and unfortunately, where public policy has lived for too long is downstream in trying right. to correct things right. that, that are very hard to undo after the fact. Once you've set 50, 60 years in motion of a, of a housing market that is, as you just described, literally designed to perpetuate these types of gaps, nibbling around the edges downstream is not going to do very much. It really isn't. We could spend a lot of money doing it, but it's, but it's not going to do as much as going upstream and saying we have to actually get to the structure. But nibbling downstream avoids the tough conversations about racism. Yes. Racism <laughs> is not just a Southern thing of Bull Connor and the KKK, where racism is a system perpetuated by everybody, especially elites on all sides of the spectrum. So we could have a whole conversation, Bingo, about about the uh, how annoying it is to watch people performatively do a lot of talking about issues that uh, that you know allows them to feel like they're doing something, but not actually getting at the heart of the issue. But that that'll be another podcast. Uh, I want to I want to uh, transition to you. You've also done really incredible work, I think, in in talking about the challenges that rural America is facing. And again, this is something that you were uh, exploring before the crisis that has now taken on new dimensions after the crisis. So uh, let me just tee you up to talk about that. What, what, what were you seeing in rural America before? And how, how do you see this crisis affecting uh, rural economies and communities now? What, what can Congress be doing to respond to that? So my work on rural America for CAP was kind of an outcome of the election. And so everyone was like, well, how did Trump win? And how do we speak to people in rural communities? And so starting that work, one of the things I found, and then this is a lot of the work with my colleague, Zoe Willingham, what we found is that we don't even talk about rural communities the right way. When you say rural America, what are you talking about? What do you mean? There's an image in our heads when we talk about rural America that's kind of been fed to us, where we think about the farmer on his tractor, um, when we think about the Midwest, we think about the term heartland. And the question is, well, what does that mean? We try to unpack that. And so what we look at it is like, well, first of all, all 50 states have rural parts to them. So we can't, it's not an area. This country is both urban and rural. 
Some places are more rural, some places are more urban, but they're both there. And the other thing is, it has a lot of the, the diversity that we kind of celebrate in cities and urban areas is there in rural areas too, but we just don't see it. We don't talk about it. And so the first piece that we did, we called it redefining rural America, just to say rural America is not what the image that you think of it. And not just in terms of racially diverse, but diverse in terms of sexual orientation, diverse in terms of, um, and in fact, um, people with disabilities, they're in rural areas a lot more than urban areas. Uh, but then also in terms of industry mix, we always think about agriculture and ag as being rural. Well, ag is rural, 20%. 20% of employment is in agriculture, which means 80% of rural employment is not. So the largest one is the service sector. But you look at mining, you look at manufacturing, construction, a lot of it. So there's a lot more industrial diversity in rural communities too. So the reason why we started with that piece is because we can't talk about policy if we look at the communities incorrectly. And so, and part of it, if you think about it, is when we think about rural policy, people think, well, that's ag policy. And if everything is about ag policy and the farm bill, you're missing 80% of employment. And there's 80% that's being left behind in, in what's happening. And so, one of the other things that's really helped and done a lot in my work recently is that there was a project at a George Washington University called the American Communities Project. And they created a 15 category typology of counties, six of them as urban and nine of them as rural. That's income, race, education, religiosity. And so that's been able to really break down the areas in a good way. So you talk about the black belt in the South, you talk about evangelicals, you even talk about uh, retiring commu retirement communities where it's a lot of tourism. And so be able to use that to kind of say, okay, well, what's going on? And so one of the pieces that I did pre-pandemic was looking at and some of the stuff that you guys have worked on, um, business dynamism, seeing what's happening with new firms. And you had that report that said that in the aftermath of the Great Recession, we're seeing a lot less business dynamism than we saw after other recessions. So I would say, well, what does this look like in rural communities? And so it's the same kind of story, except there are certain parts that uh, tourist destinations that we're actually doing pretty well. And one of the things that in our work that we want to talk about is that it's not all doom and gloom in rural communities, that there's a lot of assets, a lot of good things that are happening. The stories are always here. It's always here about rural America is dying. And so I want to be able to tell, basically our work is we want to tell a fuller story of what's happening in rural America. And so with all that work that we were able to set up with it, once the pandemic hit, we knew, okay, it may, this was like, you know, started out in Washington State, uh, New York City got hit hard, the tri-state area got hit hard, but we knew rural communities are going to get hit, that it's going to spread there, and it's going to hit them really hard because of these issues that have been going on, that's been ignored. So we think about the healthcare infrastructure. There's been a lot of hospital closures throughout the country. Um, in the last 15 years, 90% of hospital closures have been in rural areas. And so we know that once it hits those areas, it's going to be harder. We think about basic public infrastructure. So we think about uh, tribal communities and a lot of the issues that they've had where they, you know, some places don't have running water. Well, that's going to help the virus spread. And so when a pandemic first came out, you know, we did the uh, cap, did a lot of work talking about, well, what's going to the impact? What are some of the things we have to do? And I was like, hey, we have to write something about rural America. We have to write it now because 
we have to warn people if it hits these communities, it's going to hit them harder than any other place. And as Ed mentioned earlier, you hate to be proven right, but that's what happened. And so, it, you know, and the thing is, it hit rural America, but it hit the black belt harder where the higher population of African-Americans, it hit uh, places that have a high uh, Hispanic population. Uh, a lot of those places had meat packing centers. So we saw that it hit tribal communities harder than any other place. And these are all rural communities. But when you say rural America, you don't think about that. And so a lot of the work that I haven't done that we've been trying to do is to try to get people to think more broadly about what rural America means. And when we talk about rural America, who are we speaking about? Because there are some parts of rural America that this virus has not hit. And so these are places that have you know, lower population density. So the spread isn't as much, but there's a lot of places that it's hit worse than urban areas. What's the response been to your work on rural America? It's been positive. Um, a lot of people who work in the rural space are happy to see a national think tank doing this kind of work and kind of the depth that we're doing. Um, it's actually, it's actually kind of sad in a way that a lot of people, when they talk about, okay, who's doing stuff in rural, they kind of point to me that I could come in. Cause as I talked about my history, I didn't do anything rural. I did a lot of regional development, but I didn't do rural. But in the two years I've been at CAP, I've become a rural expert where people are like, oh, well, we need something to talk about rural. Oh, let's go get Benga. And while I like being able to make that kind of impact, I feel I shouldn't, I shouldn't be the rural expert. There should be so many other people at a prominent level who've done this work, but they haven't. And it hasn't been there. And so it, it's a lot of positive response, but I feel there, there, was, there was a gap that needed to be filled. Do you, do you attribute some of that to the fact that until fairly recently, I think in the economics profession, particularly the part of the profession that was the most public policy facing, there was not really a place-based focus in, in the profession is right. almost to the contrary. There's been a, there was historically a sense of, you know, that we don't really need to worry about that type of, you know, you know, uh, uh, getting beneath those aggregate numbers in, in evaluating the health of the national economy. And, and that there was kind of a foregone conclusion that rural places were going to, they were going to be whatever they're going to be. City, some cities die, some rural uh, economies die. And, we need to focus on the bigger picture. It's because post 2016, there's been much more of a focus on unpacking regional regional economies and how that plays into the bigger picture and uh, understanding the needs of left behind areas. And, and a lot more attention has gone into that. That's a focus that you and I both share. Uh, but I, but, but do you think the fact that that was relatively empty space before says something broader about the economics profession uh, prior to 2016? Yeah, I think it goes back to the whole discussion of there's optimal policy and politics ruins it because, you know, all the research is like place-based policies don't work. And we, the reason why I see place-based policies is because mayors and governors run a place. And so there was no kind of respect for place-based policy or that it could be useful. And then in economics, 
there are there's a whole field that studies place-based policy, but it's agriculture economics. And so, and in agriculture economics, that's a whole different kind of vein, and it's like extension programs and they get so they they do a lot of place-based policy, but it it's a separate kind of island from the general field. And so it wasn't until recently, as you said, because of 2016, that's like, oh, well, let's actually kind of look at place-based policy. Let's actually try to really see if there's, you know, because the other thing was there's a big moving to opportunity experiment where it's like, oh, well, we just take people out of poor, poor places and then put them in rich places and that's going to fix it. But again, one of the problems there is that upstream downstream problem that like you could put black people in rich white neighborhoods, but how are those rich white people going to respond to that? And, um, and then this actually goes back to a lot of times you, you see these discussions, you know, someone would say, oh, we have these kind of things where people move and then people will push back to say, oh, well, we have enough minorities here. We don't need more. And I remember I saw this Twitter exchange where someone had wrote that kind of like tongue in cheek, but then this woman had responded, oh, but we do have, we already have. And it's just, and, and so that's the kind of thing that's kind of, and it kind of goes back to your question before is, are we seeing an awakening, awakening now? And early on, because I had done a lot of research out on policing and out of the moment in Ferguson, I was very skeptical that we were seeing a moment. But we've seen a lot of changes, and some of it's cosmetic, but given the entrenchment of racism, cosmetic changes is still something. Like the example is, you know, we're both in a DC area. The football team is no longer called a term. It's, it's actually called the Washington football team, which I find hilarious because people who are fans who hated the name, they would always say, oh, the Washington football team. But now that's their official, official name. You look at 16th Street headed towards the White House in big, bold, yellow letters says Black Lives Matter. You know, I remember when the term first came up and the pushback to that. But now you have in all these cities, again, cosmetic, but it's still something. You have Mitt Romney marching down, you know, Constitution Avenue saying Black Lives Matter. And so I think there is a moment here. But the concern is that it's people are going to say, oh, well, it's too much too soon or that, well, we need to go gradually. And and I think one thing that we have to be cognizant of is that there's only so many times where we have these moments. And if you go gradually, there's always going to be pushback. So the further you go, when you have that pushback, you're going to be more, you could have more progress. So like I think about the police reform debate and the fact that the Republicans actually propose a police reform bill. Now, the reform bill was pretty weak. And in fact, it was stuff that was called for six years ago after in the Ferguson moment. But it's one of these where we got to push further. And so if we push further, then we actually can make real tangible changes. Don't you think it's also a concern? Because I hear you. I, I, th I, think, I think we've seen throughout the civil rights movement of the last hundred years. Uh, I mean, Dr. Ken warned about the uh, the moderates who were sympathetic, but uh, well, would, would constantly say, slow down, let's not go too fast. And that, that was actually the big enemy of progress. 
so at least for me personally, it, it doesn't come down to an issue of are we moving too fast? It comes down in a lot of ways to is the very real moment and window for change being diverted into something. I'll, I'll use an example that bothers me of defund police, right? I, I think, I think that that kind of terminology, and you saw a lot of a lot of Democratic leadership just flat out reject that. That is not, and I think rightly so, because that is that is whatever the intent is. <laughs> again, getting back to separating intent versus effects, the effect of that kind of slogan is to terrify a lot of people who would otherwise be very sympathetic to the very kind of changes that are necessary. And I, and I, I, I this comes full circle for me, and that I think it was Gallup that just released a survey. Something like 85% of Black Americans want to maintain or increase the police presence in their community. They want a police presence. They want they want uh, police to be active in their communities. They obviously don't want the kind of things that you've studied: the overmilitarization, uh, the kind of uh, the kind of use of force and engagement in communities that has caused a lot of strife. But do you see some of that playing out here in, in this debate? That it's not it's not really a question of in some cases too fast or too slow. It's what direction are we moving in and 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 the the language we attach to that, if that ends up becoming alienating to people to otherwise be sympathetic and and supportive, what have we really done for ourselves in terms of uh, moving towards that kind of progress? I'm so glad you brought that up because I have the opposite take. So everything you said about defund police was true six years ago about Black Lives Matter. It people say I don't like that statement. It alienates the people who be on our side. And when we say defund the police, I like that kind of statement because it shifts the Overton window. Because there's going to be some people who are going to pull back and there's going to be some people who are going to be all for it. But it's going to be a group in the middle and say, well, what does that mean? And so when you say defund the police, what you're saying is limit the footprint of law enforcement. And what, and what that means is that we have put too much on law enforcement because it's not about public safety, but their mental health, their social workers, their traffic cops, they're in schools. And so when you say defund the police and what, and what's funny about this is, and I saw this, uh, someone had made these posters at the time was like, and it's actually coming up now is that people say, I have a hard time with defunding police, but we're defunding the post office. We've defunded IRS, we've defunded EEOC. And so we think about, and I think about, you know, people like Grover Norquist, whose whole mantra is about defunding federal government. So we've seen, and we've actually passed defund movements. We've defunded education. We're seeing that now. And so the way to think about it is what you need is you need like a bumper sticker slogan for policy change. And so defund police is that. And then you explain that is about shifting resources from policing to other things like housing, um, education, public support systems, even um, environmental design, like the design of neighborhoods can increase public safety. And then you say, okay, well, police, let's, this is the role of police and not stack things on top. So, and then in terms of like people want more police in their neighborhoods, 
one thing I'd be interested in is a breakdown, disaggregation. So who wants that? Where do they live? Also, I think the thing about having more police is what is the role of policing? What's the role of public safety? And I think that's one thing that we've never really designed, defined. Because going back to the example of the lockdown protests in the state capitals versus the George Floyd protests, the role of policing is different in different neighborhoods. In white neighborhoods, it's protect and serve. In black and brown neighborhoods, it's social control. And so defunding police is about shift, changing that social control mission to protecting and serving. And protecting and serving also means limiting what their duties are in terms of if someone has a mental health break, 911 shouldn't be the call. The call shouldn't be to law enforcement. Um, if there's, I mean, look at schools and school discipline, cops should not be in schools for discipline. And so that's what defund police means. And so what ends up happening is that people who enjoy the status quo will then try to use defund the police to kind of make it a misnomer. To be fair, I think there are people who interpret that term or when they say that term, they mean something different than what you mean. They, they, right. they're, they're, they're pushing for something more because I think you and I probably share a lot of the same desired outcomes, uh, regardless mm-hmm. of the nomenclature. Uh, I, I just worry a lot about so, but for me, I actually don't want to see any fewer resources being devoted to police. I want to see different. I, I agree with you on the what is the proper role? What kind of things should we be putting on the police uh, versus things that should be left to other types of services? I absolutely agree. Uh, I, I, as I know you are too, I worry a lot about the <clears throat> the effect of any kind of policing pullback. Well, t- take it take it differently. Police presence has a absolutely irrefutable relationship with lowering violent crime and other types of uh, harm to vulnerable people. That, that's, that's just the, the, the data that we have suggests that. It can come with a lot of other side effects or issues that we have to address. Absolutely. And I have a strong libertarian streak in me when it comes to criminal justice. So I, uh, I'm uh, civil asset forfeiture. There are all kinds of things that I want to see completely abolished completely abolished because I think that they are they are tools of using law enforcement and the power of the state to really abuse people's individual liberty and to to exert social control in ways that are completely inappropriate in a free and just society. I mean, full stop. Uh, and we know too often police forces have been used uh, to perpetuate the kind of uh, social harms that you and I have spent a lot of this time talking about. However, uh, I think we we have to separate out those types of things from the very essential role that police play and the, and the kind of the, the, the fact that for the most vulnerable, the people who are most exposed to violent crime uh, and to the worst types of crime, there, there is no other answer but a strong and functional police force at the end of the day. I mean, there, there's no answer that doesn't include that. And so the idea of reducing resources we're playing a zero sum game between we, you know, we can do both. We can fund social programs and other types of services that fill in the gaps that police shouldn't be filling while at the same time, elevating standards for police, resourcing them appropriately, making sure that we have very high standards for who becomes a police officer. Those things I think can happen compatibly without the defund piece. 
So that's that's probably where it may be nomenclature, but it's probably where you and I uh, differ a little bit on this. Yeah, and so I, the way I look at like cause what you said that last part is correct, but that's not status quo. And so what I'm looking at is where we are now, and how do we get to the point that you want to get? And I think that does mean a shift in resources, but that's just you know that's a political debate, right? And right. just like which way do we go? But it's like we both want the same outcome, but the path we we see two different paths towards that. And so, part I, I take I, I take your point that the when you look back six years to to Ferguson in the early days of the Black Lives Matter movement, that what what seemed too radical at that time has become much more normalized. And that and that pe- people are much more accepting. I mean, six years ago, it would have been unimaginable to have the Republican senator from Utah marching in a Black Lives Matter uh, protest, right? And saying, and I think that's and I, and saying it, I think that's great. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of conservatives box themselves into a corner, being unable to say those words as if it meant that they were signing off on something that was that was radical. It's not, you know, the the, the so so I, I think. It, this is this is part of the. I agree with you that shifting the window is part of the process of change, right? It, that has to be it. I uh, there there are just still some issues where I think the people are trying to shift the, the window in different ways and 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 with in ways that will have different effects. And uh, and I think we have to preserve uh, we have to preserve what's essential about our law enforcement system in that it protects people who are truly vulnerable and in need of protection while at the same time doing the things that mitigate the kind of harm that also gets perpetuated against people who are vulnerable and in need of protection. We have to think about the end user here, so to speak, and what's going to best serve them. And I, I, I worry that what could be a moment where there is a, a massive majority of support for, for meaningful change gets, gets co-opted by people on both sides who, who actually want the fight to perpetuate. Right. You, we work in D.C. There's a professional activist class that needs the fight to perpetuate so that they continue to have a job. Right. right. It, resolving the issue actually doesn't help them. They don't want to resolve the issue. So I worry about that with this. But I, I don't I don't want to belabor the point. I, I, I think it's it's a it's a good debate that we should be having. And I have to also say what's what's my what's I was kind of coloring my outlook is that I was really in that fight six years ago, and I saw how little change was happening and got disillusioned and kind of quit. And so for me, it's like, you say defund the police and you mean getting rid of police? Sure. Like I'm at the point where it's like, (laughs) because incremental change doesn't happen in policing. So if you want to go all the way to the end, I'm all for it. Because it's one of those things where I saw people really try to fight from policymakers down to activists really work hard. And I saw nothing come out of it. In fact, George Floyd was very traumatizing for a lot of people in the fight because Minneapolis was one of the places that really worked on the reforms and worked on pushing it and had community. And it's like we did all we spent five years doing the right thing. And seeing what happened in Minneapolis was like. It was all for nothing. And it, One really, other, it really disillusioned a lot of people. I can understand that. I, one other thing that came that should have come from the Ferguson uh, uh, period and the findings from that uh, from that federal report uh, on Ferguson was the, the way that police 
and the and the law enforcement and criminal justice have been used to extract wealth from vulnerable people and and the cost of being poor and the cost of of exposure to fines and fees and how disruptive that is to an already disproportionately disrupted uh, and vulnerable population. These are these are the kind of things that I, I think we can and should be radical about. If radical means completely rejecting something that again is upstream. If if we don't get that part right, then again we're talking about downstream, you know, nibbling around the edges rather than let's fundamentally redesign the way that we uh, that we enforce and interact with uh, with populations that come in contact with law enforcement and criminal justice in a way that is not extractive in this in, yes. in a very cynical way. I mean, I mentioned civil asset forfeiture earlier. It is it is still unbelievable to me that in a free country we tolerate the seizure of property without a, without even an arrest of the individual being required, without charges being required, without without any kind of due process uh, to, to separate you from your property. And this is something that is treated as, uh, well, it's it's a tool of law enforcement to prevent you know drug dealers from, <laughs> from transporting their money, except that you have hundreds of stories of right. youth group pastors and small business owners and just regular people and when, it's revenue for the agency and it's stuff. revenue for the agency. Right. And which is which is where the raw power element of, of this comes down, because because it just it becomes very brass tacks when when you push on this issue, you get that response. Well, how, how else are you going to fund? <laughs> this is 10 or 20 percent of their annual budget that they that they know they can count on. I mean, it's and, and the one person in Congress who really saw no problem with it ended up becoming attorney general, uh, Jeff Sessions. So that uh, so I, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of. There are a lot of issues like that where when you when you unpack it, these are there's not a middle ground solution to them. This is just you, you stop doing it like you, you fundamentally change it. And I think if we were to stack those issues up, you can make an enormous amount of progress and not just the the out, the way people feel about policing or the way they feel about their interactions with the criminal justice system, but about the fundamental relationship, what we what we deem tolerable for the state to do vis-a-vis the individual. And and I think uh, redefining those boundaries is really important if we want to get to the kind of future that I think you and I both both want to see, because some things should be off limits. And and once we start to redefine those limits, I think it becomes much clearer uh, within the limits that we want. We want a really strong and healthy environment uh, police presence. But outside of those limits, we have no tolerance for it. And I think that has to become much more of a bipartisan concern. And I'm shocked, frankly, that the, that it's taken as long as it has, and, and you're starting to see it now, but an awakening to things like uh, asset forfeiture abuse and, and the, the role that that plays and the disproportionate effect that has on communities of color and poor communities because it is designed to be extractive, right? And yes. because you can only extract from people who have no leverage in the system, right. Right. right? This is something that should marry libertarians, progressives, uh, small government conservatives. These are things that really, you, you can come at this from three or four different angles and still arrive at the same destination in terms of what you want to see policymakers do. I want to, tra- speaking of what we want to see policymakers do, I want to transition to your, uh, as we close here, your sense of the federal response so far to this crisis. How would you evaluate it? And where where are we now in terms of both the economic fallout and what Congress needs to do next to anticipate not just the next two or three months, not just a stopgap response, but what is what does the bigger picture need to look like in terms of how Congress is approaching this? I think, you know, being a former professor, you want to look at how to grade it. Well, you look at the outcomes. 
And you look at where we are now in terms of the public health crisis, the number of cases, the number of deaths, and then we look at the economy. And so, you know, I, my timeline all today and this week was like, oh, the economy's looking good. The economy's not bad. You know, you look at the stock market, hey, we've reached a high, right? And it's like, we still have double digit unemployment rates, not double digit unemployment rates for African Americans or for native groups. The aggregate number is in double digits, which we haven't seen in years. And you can't grade, you can't give a passing grade because everything is still really bad. I mean, the fact is we are doing this podcast over Zoom and not at a cafe, right? Even though it's six months from when this started. As if we were in New Zealand, we would be able to do that, right? And so that's the way to grade it. You look at the packages, the last package that was passed, the CARES Act was March 27th. So April, May, June, July, halfway through August, with the data that we have, there hasn't been any further one. I know, I think in April, there was like an extension, but again, nothing through the summer, even though all the data tells us is that we should be continuing to put more money in, put more money in. And that's assuming that the CARES Act was sufficient or large enough to get us through, and it wasn't. And so the one thing I want to focus on is state and local relief. So state and local governments have been hammered throughout this pandemic. You have unemployment, you know, historic unemployment. You have small business closures. So that means their income tax base is getting decimated. Retail sales has dropped off. So the sales tax base has been, there's been even property tax revenue has gone down. They have balanced budget requirements. So they can't just float debt, you know, willy nilly. So they have to figure out what to do. So what does that mean? They're going to be cutting services. They're going to cut support. And, and then the other thing, now you have a decrease in revenue, but an increase in cost because they're the ones who are tackling this pandemic. They're tackling the public health crisis. So money to hospitals, uh, money to individuals to kind of help out. And so the CARES Act had $150 billion to state and local governments. So I say local governments, but there was a restriction on populations of 500,000 or more. So populations of 500,000 or less, which is a lot of all the rural communities, they were left out. But even that $150 billion was restricted like only for COVID. So it wasn't it. They couldn't use it to match up the budget shortfall. So we saw even when the quote unquote good jobs numbers came out for May and June and July, we saw a loss of state and local jobs of almost uh, 1.5 million. And that's a lot of people who've lost their jobs. These are good jobs, middle class jobs. And there is nothing from the federal government who can take on debt to help them out. So CARES actually was deficient in terms of helping out state and local governments, but they still, state and local governments still had to respond and react. And so the fact that the federal government hasn't done anything to help there is very, is very disconcerting. And then you have the unemployment insurance, the expanded unemployment insurance. And this, you know, again, I say everything goes back to race. You look at the unemployment insurance, which is a state run system. Some states are running, are better at running it than others. And the ones that are not good tend to be in the South, tend to have high African American population. And it's not just that they don't have great systems or they're not updated, but they were actively harmful to people who lost their jobs. 
And in fact, it was the governor DeSantis from Florida who admitted, it's like, yeah, we want to make sure people didn't get it. And it's, it's, well, he was, he, he was, I thought that was a really important moment because he was talking about a system his predecessor uh, uh, from the same party right. implemented and b- bemoaning the fact that it was designed to be complicated. So uh, uh, just for listeners who may not have been familiar with it, hmm. this was not him saying, yeah, this is what we want. He was saying, this is a totally messed up process that has, that has buckled in a crisis because it was designed to be so Byzantine and, and uh, right. Kafka-esque that people would just give up, which I think is a breakthrough moment. I, I mean, I really, I really looked at that and I thought if, if you can have a, a, a governor of a major state like Florida describe their unemployment system like that, uh, that, that is the beginnings of what would hopefully be a redefinition of how we approach those systems for, to be more resilient and useful in, in the future. Right. Uh, but I just wanted to pause on that because I thought it was so significant. It is significant. And it's one of those things. So one of, I, I wrote a piece last fall saying that the United States is not ready for a recession, but they can be. And one of the biggest things is that we need to fix unemployment insurance, make it more generous, uh, raise the tax base. Uh, mo- actually, I didn't even talk about modernization, um, which I should have. But the fact that all these systems run on COBOL which you probably have to do an explainer for your listeners <laughs> under the age of 60. Um, but the fact that it runs on COBOL, it, it's, it, it's mind boggling how bad these systems that are there to provide a floor. Like this is the whole thing is that we have recessions and we want to help people. I mean, I assume we want to help people. And so what you want is you want to create a floor for people to be able to bounce back. But we've we seen this pandemic that is not because, first of all, unemployment insurance leaves out a whole set of people, which the pandemic unemployment census was able to take care of. So it's like, okay, these are people who are left out. Let's keep them there. Because at the end of the day, when we help people who are hurting, that doesn't, doesn't just help them. It helps all of us because they're spending money, which boosts the economy. I mean, basic macro tells us that 70% of GDP is consumer spending. And if we maintain consumer spending, that's 70% that we're helping out. And if we slash consumer spending, that's 70% of GDP. And so we are actually harming, actively harming ourselves when we don't help people. This is where I think, so two things. One is I, it's when we talk about the federal response, uh, it's probably useful to separate out the federal public health response and the federal economic response. On the public health response, the fact that we have been so inadequate in our response, really from the from the get go. Number one, at acknowledging the problem, kind of like what you said earlier about race, it has to start with acknowledging the problem and defining what it actually is. We we've, we failed to do that correctly early on. We failed to respond appropriately, and then then the American people have just failed to abide by basic things like wearing a mask. Right? We just we, we we see that this is true in areas that are having a surge. I'm from South Carolina. South Carolina is having a, a terrible time right now, and friends and family down in the state say they're the only ones wearing masks mm. when they go out. They're the only ones social distancing. It's actually looked at as you know, crazy behavior to be wearing a mask in a in a public place uh, in some of these areas. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's there's some there is some responsibility and 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 uh, uh, and onus being uh, I think placed that's not that's not being picked up enough by by just average people. But the but the federal response has not adequately set the table on, on the public health side. And we're, we're paying the consequences for that economically. But on the economic side, if we were having this conversation a month ago, I would actually be pretty positive 
writ large about the response for, for a couple of reasons. And I want you to tell me why I'm wrong. One is think back 10 years to the, to the response to the Great Recession. The size and speed of the relief that was passed in the wake of this pandemic just boggles the mind if your last point of reference is the response to the to the Great Recession. You know, the, the, the fact, it was not, at least to me, a foregone conclusion that Congress would, would come out with a multi-trillion dollar response as quickly as they did, that they would pass expanded UI in the way that they did, that, you know, that these things would happen and be implemented as quickly as they were. Uh, and so just the size and speed, even if it was not in retrospect adequate, and I agree with all that, uh, especially knowing what we know now, knowing what they knew then, I, I, was, I was pleasantly surprised that we did not repeat a lot of the mistakes of the early response to the, to the financial crisis, point one. And point two, when you look at the effects, uh, unemployed households actually increased their spending over the, over the subsequent few months. So exactly to your point, why does this make sense? Because, because the most vulnerable families are going to be the most likely to, uh, to increase consumption, which helps the economy uh, at a time when we desperately need that. Uh, we, we see that small businesses improve, report improved balance sheets and, and resiliency as, as PPP dollars start to flow in. So you know, poverty actually goes down uh, in the wake of this crisis. These, are, you know, these were not foregone conclusions. But then, uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier before the, before the recording, we get one jobs report that suggests things are starting to bounce back. And everybody, I think not everybody, but many people take their foot off the gas and say, well, in fact, I remember one quote in a, I think it was a Washington Post story where an unnamed Republican aide said, this definitively kills the idea of any trillion dollar plus relief packages going forward. And that mentality has now pervaded that it's both short-termism in that we can just, what, what we do, we can just do in two or three month increments because this thing's going to be over tomorrow or the next day or the next day. So failing to grasp the duration of the crisis. And two, it's the, I think we had a really irrational sense that reopening was going to be the panacea for the economy before the public health crisis was under control. <laughs> and so uh, and so sitting here now versus early July, I think it's much harder to grade because sitting here now, PPP has expired. Yep. No, no, no more small business uh, relief uh, going out the door. Uh, the expanded UI has expired. Yep. Uh, you have Congress out on, on recess indefinitely. <laughs> uh, so this is not a good place to be. But a month ago, I was actually kind of hopeful that uh, if we could get our, our minds around the, the fact that this is not a short-term crisis, that this is something that's going to carry us well into next year, and that we have to have relief at that scale and at that duration, which is totally possible, Benga, as you know. I mean, like, there's no reason we can't do this in the right way. Uh, I was I was hopeful that we might actually get there by the end of July, and uh, and so unfortunately we haven't. So now, I, so my grade has gone down because it's a moving target, right? This is an evolving right. crisis, and 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 grading on the curve of we didn't know in March exactly what this is going to be, and so you know that first effort in cares was, you know, it, it was I think as large and as quick a response as one could reasonably expect. It was actually exceeded my expectations in some way, given at that early stage. The problem has been the, the lack of to me the that steps step one was good enough for its time, but steps two, three, and four that should have happened since then have just failed to materialize. And so now we're, we're seeing the dwindling effects. In fact, we could have all the good that was done by CARES 1.0 undone 
if those very, for example, the very same businesses that we extend the lifeline for end up dying anyway, because the relief runs out and they can't take right. the second loan or they can't access new programs. So that's a great way to waste a lot of money. But am, am I missing something in that analysis that you think is, is important? Yes and no. So you're correct that the, the extent of what they did in March and April, April, it was surprising and it was, you know, oh, this is good. And I guess I would have, I was probably where you were. Well, I'm always skeptical of policymakers, so I'll never get to that point, but I was probably close to where you were in May, in beginning of June, where it's like, okay, you know, we see that this is still continuing, the public health crisis is still continuing, but the House passed the HEROES Act, so there's something that they could work out before we get to the cliff in July 31st. But then June passed, we had the, again, I'm using air quotes, good jobs report. And so then everyone's like, oh, well, we, we don't need to do it. We take wait and see. And that's when I started to panic. It's like, if that's what they're, if they look at that June report as a good report, then we are screwed. And, and then I was thinking, okay, well, July 31st, they should have some sort of deal. But I'm worried about the July, using July 31st as a hard deadline because then they would just use that to say, oh, well, we can pass whatever. And you're going to say yes because you don't want that to go away. And I was hoping that, you know, Dems would hold out for actually a good plan and that if they didn't get it July 31st to say, okay, well, we're still pushing for something good because we need something big. We can't limit ourselves given the public health crisis. And then I was thinking that the, the jobs number, the July jobs number come out in August would hopefully be the one that would spur action. And then nothing happened. And now who knows what's going to happen. So, I mean, you're correct. The initial fiscal response was good, but because it wasn't followed up by anything. And, and then one, actually, one of the other reasons why I was worried about, I wasn't, even though the CARES Act was good, what was missing were triggers. And if they had had triggers, I would have been much happier with it because we wouldn't be where we are now. Because if you do triggers, link it to unemployment rates, you know, preferably like state unemployment rates because states move at different rates. But even for national one, we would still have PPP would still be going. UI would be still going. All the stuff would still be going because we aren't out of the crisis yet. But because we leave it up to policymakers and we know how policymakers work, except in March, it's, it's one of those things where we are in a situation where we are now. And now we have the election uh, looming and uh, uh, the traditional playbook says policymaking becomes increasingly difficult for every day you get closer to a national election. But see, this is the thing that always gets me. It's like you want the public to like, you want things to turn around and you're doing all the things that make things worse. Like, I don't understand that. You, you know, tackle the public health crisis, simple things like just wearing a mask you know, putting a ton of money into all these programs and cutting multiple checks to people, like that makes people like you. Like, why would you do stuff that makes the situation worse? Can you give the economist answer for why? Because you hear a lot of a lot of the pushback on the UI piece, for example, being we don't want to create a disincentive for people to work where there are jobs available. Why is that not something we should worry about? Because... Actually, I should, because this is the kind of thing where I would just like start foaming at the mouth <laughs> because COVID is the work disincentive. I mean, if going to a job lets you 
ends up, you end up catching something that kills you. I mean, that's, I, it's, it's almost like, I don't know how to answer that because it's such a basic answer. I just read a story, um, basketball player who used to play for Florida state playing in Serbia now had COVID, contracted COVID recovered and died yesterday of a heart attack. There was a Boston Red Sox player who contracted COVID and then uh, found um, organ. I think it was like a heart thing or something like that. That was a heart thing. This is a vicious virus that even if you survive has long run impacts. And you're saying an extra $600 a month, a week is going to make you not want to work. No, I don't want to die. That's the disincentive. And that's how basic. But then the other thing, if $600 a week makes you not want to go to that job, then that job does not pay enough. Because what that says is that you're not, it, it, it's the amount of money beforehand was not enough to help out. And so, and then the other thing, the $600 goes back to the UI system is the reason why we have a $600 is because the systems are so antiquated that we actually can't do a hundred percent replacement rate that we actually can't program that in. And so that $600 a week would make the average replacement rate 100, 100% because we want people to stay home while we tackle this public health crisis. And the public health crisis hasn't been adequately handled. So because not adequately handled, what was true in March is true now. And so we should, again, want people to stay home, lock down, but then take the steps to actually test, trace, isolate, wear masks, be safe, socially distance, all that stuff. And so the, the, the fact that we're like haggling over $600 a week, it, it just kind of goes back to the system of who, who is benefiting and do we want them to benefit? And we're going to sound like a broken record, but I think this all goes back to race and kind of like the, the institution of poverty that these that these support are not, these people are not deserving of support. Even though we had $500 billion go to like five airlines, $600 a week to people who are contracting the virus, who are trying to make ends meet, who are paying rent, who are paying utilities. That's some, somehow they're not deserving of that. And they're actually being lazy and don't want to work. It is such a damaging and you know, it, it, it's a critical mistake on the part of our policymakers because we're seeing and we're going to continue to see how damaging to the economy this is going to be. And not just talking about the next two or three months, we're talking years. Because you jump back to the Great Recession in 2011, they started with fiscal austerity and research showed that it shaved half a percentage point off GDP growth and harmed a lot of these states a lot of these rural communities that were already struggling pre-pandemic have now gotten even hit harder. I think you hit the nail on the head that the, the consistent original sin in the response or lack of response has been not understanding that the virus is in charge and that until, until that is under control, the, the normal rules just don't apply to how we respond to a crisis. So the things one might be worried about or one might have a good faith debate over, just it doesn't map onto this crisis in, in any kind of logical way. One example of this that came to mind as you were talking is 
there was talk for a while about doing a, a vacations, uh, like a travel and tourism incentive. It's like, no, the reason people are not taking vacation is not because they don't have a marginal tax incentive to, to, to make that uh, a little less expensive. It's because they're afraid of dying. That's it. Right. And it does make you feel kind of crazy to have to say that out loud. You know, it's, it's not, this is not an issue for which there's a tax incentive fix. It's a, or, or you know, we don't need a meals and, and, and entertainment deduction increase. You know, for that's not that's not the issue. They want to be able to eat safely. They want to be able to vacation safely. Make it safe, and that problem solves itself. Right. Uh, so I, I I think I think consistently coming back to that issue of, you know, the best thing for the economy is 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 absolutely winning the public health side of this crisis, and and because you know. We did have a pretty healthy economy uh, in, in a broad sense coming into this crisis. There, it, we were at a, a point where I think for a lot of us, there was the margin to finally start to do some things that had been undone for left undone for the ten years after the Great Recession. Things that you know there was still a lot of unfinished business, but having a having a strong economy, relatively speaking, allows you to start to branch further out into those areas of unfinished business. Now we're back to square one. You know, it's a really a fight for survival, and uh, and you know, my my hope is that we can learn some of the lessons that we uh, that we didn't learn after the Great Recession in terms of getting beneath those aggregate numbers, labor market numbers, GDP numbers, national growth, and thinking about who's actually participating in economic growth and recovery, who and where, right? Uh, and and. Because that's the frontier of policymaking that's going to make this recovery either a success or a failure that we have to learn from again, like the last one. Uh, so I really appreciate you coming on the show to talk about this stuff. I think, I think we could have a, another whole conversation about uh, where we just left off. Um, but this Thank has been really enlightening. Thank you for taking the time to do this. And I uh, hope you'll come on again soon. Thank you for inviting me. This was a great conversation. And that does it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Benga Ajalori for joining me. To explore his work and commentary further, I've included links in the show notes. Please check those out. As always, you can find me on Twitter at LatiriDC. Let me know what you thought of this week's episode. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, be well and thanks for listening.